This week we have Farmer Phil on the sofa. Hello, Farmer Phil. Hello, Hiv. And a lack of Ricardo. Hearing <laughs> <laughs> me. Good news. <laughs> so I thought I'd share with you a few Ricardo tips. We've got lots of feedback and we've got food writer Rosemary Moon. But first of all, because Ricardo's not here, I thought I would share with you how to put up your bird box because he's just written this really nice wiggly habitat guide and he says fix your bird box facing between north and southeast put it at least two meters above the ground it protects it against pussy cats and other predators most species of garden bird prefer to nest in isolation so place your boxes at least 15 meters apart sparrows however are communal so several boxes together will accommodate several pairs now why he hasn't put there we do a sparrow terrace i don't know but probably doesn't want to sell anything again avoid any disturbance in the spring or early summer disturb as little as possible at other times birds often like to roost in nest boxes especially in the winter if you would like to clean out your bird box in preparation for next year's nest do so around september time to be sure that all the nesting activity has finished any comments, Phil? Well, there we have it. I only wondered that the direction that you face your next box probably is different in different parts of the world, isn't it? Because it's about the prevailing wind and the direction the sun is coming from. My darling listener, this is if you're in the UK only. If you're in the US, as is Andrew Bolt, who's given us some feedback, he's in California, you'll have to look it up there with the Audubon Society and what not. If you missed Simon Sherlock's top five on my blog, you have missed a treat because he has had a can of worms since 1999 and that's his number one wiggly product. Number two wiggly product is his Bukashi bin. Number three, compost mate, interestingly. Number four is wiggly seed. And number five is... (laughs) Good stuff, said Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Number five is worms eat my garbage and the other books. So if you want to go to my blog and have a look, it's wigglywigglers.blogspot.com. Talking of seed, Farmer Phil, you've been at it. my frustration finally got the better of me yesterday. Because Mark Eccleston, our photographer, came visiting and wanted to see the sunflowers, I dared to go and have a look. And it's been raining pretty seriously for the last week or ten days, it seems. And so on looking at my sunflowers, I thought, hold on a minute. These are actually nearly feasible. We could just risk trying to combine these. So notwithstanding the fact the combine wouldn't go because somebody like me had left the radio on and flattened the battery, um, last night we got stuck into them. And they went really well. And we've combined two or three acres of them before the rain stopped us. But all being well, we'll have another go later on this afternoon. And they they went really well. And so the difference between yours and Patrick's, which we've got... um a neighbour who's growing seeds for us. I mean, he's combined his ages ago. Well, he cut his about three weeks ago, and the difference was that when he cut his, the seed was ripe, but the rest of the plant was quite green. It had still got green leaves on it, so that when you put it through the combine, there was a certain amount of pithy crud going round the machine. 
but it worked all right and the seed's fine and is now dry and in the shed. And in our case, we waited for ours, ours were a little bit behind his anyway, but we waited for ours to die off until they're black and helped with a couple of frosts, that that's what they did. But of course now we've had a lot of rain. So our problems are that the actual plant is quite rubbery and seems to combine very well. There's a little bit of crud, but not much. But our problems are the ground conditions because it's very, very soft. It will be embarrassing if yours truly gets the combine stuck. Notwithstanding that, so far, so good. Well, we sent Ricardo, the rowing reporter, at night to He doesn't combine. row very well at the moment, though, I found. that He, he was hobbling about <laughs> on the field of it. But we sent him at night to Phil's combine cab to hear the actual live moments. And that will be coming up in a podcast near you shortly. We didn't actually get him as far as the combine cab. He was incapable of getting up the steps, we felt. So we conducted our interview out in the field. Right. Well, we'll hear about that at some point soon. But for our customers who may want to buy sunflower seeds, we've had a special label made with Farmer Phil's sunflower seeds on it. And they're available from December How long will they last, Phil? Well, I'm hoping that we might just about have enough of our own with our crop and Patrick's to supply us right through the year. But if we don't, we'll only be buying English-grown sunflower because I've agreed to buy some from down in Dorset so that hopefully, unless you get and sell a lot more than I'm anticipating, we'll be on English sunflower exclusively. That's a major step. And I'm hoping, dear customer, that we'll run out Tuesday week. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Rach has used the farm phone. I mean, it comes to something, doesn't it, listener, when we have to have our own Wiggly team phoning in. So please, use the phone, darlings. It's 01981 500930. You can leave a message. It's a normal phone. You just phone it up. You'll hear us saying, this is about the podcast. Leave a message. Do it. But here's Rach. Hello, it's Rach calling from Wiggly Wigglers. Just to tell you the excellent news that we've received an order from Slow Food London, a great organisation, and this order is for 12 bouquets to be put on the tables in the House of Lords, believe it or not, and they're going to be delivered by our very own Farmer Phil, who's actually going to London on Thursday. So they'll be on the tables on Friday for a fantastic dinner. Thanks, bye-bye. Then food writer Rosemary Moon wrote to Caroline Drummond at Leaf and she forwarded it to me. And this was in response to our podcast with Leaf. And she said, very informative and enjoyable. And then she phoned me up to talk about eating squirrel. So thank you, Rosemary. Here she is. Hello, Heather. I've been meaning to ring you for ages. We bought some of your wonderful wildflower turf with the wildflower plugs at the beginning of September. Yeah. Our gardener put it down and he just, he was in ecstatic uh, mode about it. He said he'd never seen anything so good in all his life. Fantastic. It grew like crazy. And we had loads of red campion in it. And uh, various gardening friends came and sort of tut-tutted and said, hmm, I think you've got too much growth there. But it was just going great guns. And we're thrilled. We did, you know, cut it and harvest it. And that was all very good fun. Good. And it's looking great. And I'll send you some photos in the spring. So that, that would be wonderful. Thing. Yep, that was one thing. And then with regard to squirrel. Yes. Now, uh, we've just listened to your podcast over lunch, which was very good food for thought. 
at the Guild of Food Writers, we had a workshop once on game, and we actually tasted squirrel within that. And it was slightly uh, greasy, but like chicken with attitude, it was more oily than any other game that I've eaten. Was it tender? Yes, and it was jolly tasty. Right. And what you got was like being shortchanged on a lamb neck fillet. You know, it was a nice sort of eye of meat, but obviously not very much of it. Yep. Lots of people were a bit, Ugh, I can't taste that sort of thing. But it was really very tasty indeed. And I can see a place for it commercially within a game mix. What are your thoughts on, you know, I know you're a member of the CPRE, for example. Yeah. What, what is, and, and I know you're a keen environmentalist. What, what is your thought on the, the shock factor and the, uh, the idea behind this? Uh, do you think it's valid or do you think that people just won't be able to accept it as useful? I think there's such an interesting move towards eating local at the moment that if people are served with a good local butcher and game dealer, that if he were to offer a game mix, and make it perfectly clear that there was squirrel in it. I'm sure some people would think, hmm, not quite sure, but others would think, yes, let's give it a go. Yeah. I mean, we live very close to Goodwood, and I remember the Duke of Richmond talking about how they would eat squirrel pie during the war on yeah. the estate. And I'm sure that there is a, a kind of a deprivation thing about it. You know, if all else fails, eat squirrel. Mm. But there's so many of them around, and it, you know, if they are properly managed in an area that is aware of countryside values, I think there could be there could be a market for it. I mean, it's never going to replace Hereford, thank God, but, you know, mm. uh, as in beef, not your good self. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if you eat pigeon, yeah. is it much different from that? I don't think so. And um, tell me about you, Rosemary, because you're a food writer, aren't you? I am indeed. Yeah, I've never written a, a recipe for squirrel, though, Heather. <laughs> could be the first coming up. <laughs> Well, I just love food, you know, and I've been uh, writing about it and telling people about it for 30 years. But I think what's happening at the moment is really exciting with local food. Yeah. Um, because I think people are really stopping to question where their food is coming from, and that's great. I think one of the things we all have to realize is that you've got to have time to do that, though. Yeah. Um, you know, for people who are running a family and, you know, trying to have a life and relax as well, the concept of going from one shop to another is, is still very difficult. And there's no doubt at all that it does take time. Mm. So I think the shopping public is falling into two distinctive lots now. But, you know, it is fascinating to see how butchers or counters are springing up in farm shops. Yes. All over the place now. And, and I think what we just have to watch out for is that where this is happening, the staff are really well trained. They know what they're selling because people who have got the time to go and find these products want more information. You um, mean of, of the cuts or how to cook it or both? or And the breed. Yeah. And how it's been raised and all of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it never ceases to amaze me, Heather, how many young men know so much about meat. Really? And, yeah. 
It's absolutely fascinating because I think they take it in more. I mean, I was at dinner on Friday night with a young chap I'd not met before. He's in his early 30s, and he was so interesting to talk to about meat. He said he'd worked as a butcher when he left school. He was now working as a builder and, you know, with a property developing. But he just loved meat and loved talking about it. And I know from uh, the consultancies that I've done for Waitrose over many, many years that in focus groups they found that it is the young men who really have the knowledge. Wow, we better not tell Richard that. <laughs> Wait, is he not keen on his meat then? <laughs> oh, he loves his meat, but I'm, I wouldn't like him to think that I thought he had lots and lots of knowledge. No, no, that could be <laughs> tricky. I do see that. But you know, Heather, in the States it's been obviously years that our, the people who are cooking are young single men. And, you know, they might know how to cook a chicken breast or a, a steak or whatever, lamb chops, lamb leg steaks or whatever, and they might just have a stock of two or three sauces that they can make that they can serve on any of those things. But it's the young men who are leading the resurgence. And you see that a bit in the hobby cooks now. That's quite encouraging, isn't it? Because I would have thought, I mean, and one doesn't want to generalise, but what I would have thought that probably they'd be perhaps a little less squeamish than a lot of the rest of us in terms of trying other things such as squirrel. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, <laughs> down here at the fabulous Westine Gardens, we have a chilli fiesta every year in August. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the average garden visitor is in, you know, somewhere between 50 and 70. Yeah. And quite conservative and knows their Latin names. Whereas at the chilli fiesta, you get guys with studs and earrings everywhere that you could see and don't want to see coming in, grumping that they've got to leave their pit bulls in the car <laughs> and wanting to have a taste experience. You know, That's they're amazing. just kind, kind of macho image. But if you then translate that into the fact that they're cooking or they're being adventurous, it shows perhaps where the market is going. Where do we find out uh, more about your writing? Have you got a website, Rosemary? Yeah, I'm just launching a new website, Heather, which hopefully will go live on the 4th of December. Fantastic. Can you give and, me the address? Uh, yeah, moonbites, M for moon, and then B-I-T-E-S dot info. Lovely. I shall put that up on my blog. And thank you so much for contributing on Not the farm phone. And Not I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast. Yes, um, we love it. And fantastic with Caroline Drummond's. Brilliant. Oh, good. speaker she is. Yes, yeah, she's great, isn't she? Yeah. Please come back on. I'd love to, Heather. And All good right. luck to you and our garden. I'm learning to let go, as you said. <laughs> Enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And even more feedback, we've got an email from California on the shooting podcast. And the shooting podcast was number 53. And this email is from Californian Andrew Bolt, who says he used to live in Monmouth. He says he now lives in California and still supports his shooting fishing habit. He gets news from time to time that crazy things are going on in the UK regarding hunting and shooting, and it's nuts. He says, as you know, Americans live and die by their firearms, quite literally. But one thing they do do well is the preservation of bird and fish habitat. This is entirely driven by hunters and fishermen alike through different membership clubs. This is the way we can preserve bird and fish habitat. 
He's going to pass on his podcast to all his Brit and the like friends. Keep up the entertainment, Andrew Bolt. So thank you for that, Andrew. And on that note, you've been talking to your bank manager, Phil, (laughs) which we promised some time ago. Here he is. Just don't mention to the bank manager anything about shooting. He doesn't know about that. That's all right. He doesn't know about shooting? No. What do you mean? Well, he'd say that's a non-farming expense, so we don't worry about that. (laughs) Oh, no! Here's Greg. Right, so Farmer Phil reporting, and he has just completed the nervous date of his year, meeting with his bank manager, and in this case it's Greg Fowler from Lloyd's, and we've conducted our annual review, and I'm happy to say that we're still in business. But I'm going to ask Greg a few questions with relation to what the subsidy situation and lack of payment of it, the effect it's had on on farmers and so on, and his experience of it. So, Greg, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us. You've obviously been at the sharp end of the problems affecting the single farm payment in this country amongst your customers. What has your take been on it, and what sort of effects have you seen, you know, both to people like us and to, to your other customers? I think the biggest take that I can see, and I can see it as a... Herefordshire being a border county, is that the Welsh single farm payment delivery has been so straightforward and so easy in comparison to the English review of how to deliver single farm payment, which has been highly complicated, discouraging for farmers because they have to spend a significant amount of time chasing, collating and correcting RPA errors and has created a huge amount of extra cost to the farming industry. When you can actually see it from an English perspective and then from the Welsh perspective where 2005 single farm payment was actually delivered in almost totality by December 31st 2005 and I'm in fact sitting with your good self where 2005 RPA um, payment is still to be delivered in full and I think that from a logical and an outsider's perspective is almost beggar's belief. Given that, as you know, our business has income streams other than just farming in the, in the form of, of Wigley's and so on, there are presumably customers of yours who have got smaller businesses than we have and are much more reliant on their farming income for whom this is actually very, very serious. I think the government, the, certainly the English side of the UK government, have made a great play on diversification and those industries that have been able to diversify has had the advantage in these current circumstances but on a pure agricultural basis those people who are not reliant on subsidies but include subsidies within their actual cash flow um, delays to June of this year um, effectively six months after the date if you use, use that as a average is incredibly hard to accept from an operational perspective. And I have seen difficulties. We have spent a great deal amount of time within, certainly my region of Hereford and Worcester, of actually trying to look at those difficulties and being sympathetic to them. But the difficulty is to the farmer as well as it is to the banker, is how long will that extra facility, how long will that extra burden on the farm be needed and no one knows and no one still knows 
I was going to say that that is the, the, the problem, that if you knew where to plan to, both from your point of view and ours, you could make sense of it. Whereas I've basically been saying to you for the last 12 months, I filled my forms in correctly, Greg, they will pay me, won't they? But really, we've got very little evidence to show until some or all of the money is turned up that any of that works. And I'd imagine from your point of view, it's quite stressful going to see people who are unhappy and stressed themselves and there's no information to actually make any planning as to how to rectify the situation. Look at it from the farmer's perspective and the actual stress is more significantly on them. For us it is paperwork but um, from a farmer's perspective it is actually their living. They must find it very very difficult when certainly in Herefordshire that they look over the border and see the Welsh Assembly being incredibly proactive. They then look over the channel to the French who are or do have an an exceptionally strong agricultural lobby being very proactive for these changes. And then we look at the English system which has been not a disaster but being very close to a disaster from rural business perspective. There's no question that just the costs of the delays are are not insignificant. You mentioned earlier on in our meeting that that we as a business have shelled out something in excess of a couple of thousand pounds in interest and what have you over the last 12 months just financing the money that the RPA haven't paid us. And therefore, for other businesses, this meant up to a considerable sum of money cost to the industry and it wasn't hugely lucrative to start with. Well, if you look at the actual impact, the data from the RPA themselves, the actual cost of implementation overrun um, is actually some 46 million above original budget, and that just ignores what extra cost has impacted on the farmer themselves. And I dread to think what the impact would be. Mm. Uh, on a very rough rule of thumb, we did sit down and look at the potential cost on the Hereford and Worcester farming group, which is round about 1,100 groups in total, and we concluded it would have cost round about three million mm. in extra debit interest from just the lack of payment in December, which would have been IAX in 2004. So I should say at this point, listener, that um, I, I know that Greg is sitting across the table from me, and therefore he is within range, but. As a bank, I've found him to be very helpful and he has not charged us all the arrangement fees that he could have done and I would imagine that that has been true of his other agricultural customers as well. But one of the things that the bank has imposed on him is that over the past 12 months, because of the uh, uncertainty, we've been unable to put in place facilities for any length of time so that in our case we've had meetings or at least contact as often as, as every couple of months because we just go from each two-month block to the next to report that the RPA haven't paid us. And presumably this has radically increased your workload in mundane phone calls to sad farmers just to hear that they haven't had their money yet and that, please, can we extend our overdraft? They can be a little bit more high-charge than that. But, um <laughs> Uh, The other problem is that all overdraft facilities um, are very correctly regulated and for it to be regulated it requires a joint agreement between bank and the customer which can't be done overnight because it requires documentation. 
and I can totally sympathise with the farmer in general who finds that incredibly frustrating. And we find it very frustrating that we can't react more quickly. Well, I was going to say that, sort of, really, in, in conclusion, it does appear from the press that the pressure on the RPA and the powers that be, the government department, DEFRA, has been increasing of late, and that one would feel that that pressure should translate into the situation being ironed out inevitably, which should ease all our lives. I should also say that uh, I, I have gathered that Heather has been invited to go and meet Mr Miliband next month at some point to uh, give him the benefit of her opinions on the subject, so I, I hope he's ready for it. I would suspect that um, she'll be very vocal in doing so. If I can get her wound up enough before she goes, I'm sure she will. But thank you very much indeed for that, Greg. And um, sadly, I'm not in a position to say that I'm going to run off and spend all the money that you've lent me. But anyway, we'll toast the prospect of a more successful year and uh, we'll see you again in the near future. Thank you. Now, despite the fact I have in the past accused the occasional farmer of being a moaning old... (laughs) Actually, the latest news is that there are over 4,200 claimants still waiting for some of the 2005 single farm payment. I think, actually, as of the end of November, that's the payment window open for 2006, so that they're over 12 months behind now. There we are. Al's joined us. Welcome, Al, to the Wiggly Sofa. Hello. And if you get a chance to listen to the Trafcom podcast with Donna Papacosta in Canada... You'll hear me on it, talking about podcasting, my favourite subject. So if you want to listen to that, go to Trafcom News Podcast, which is www.trafcom, which is T-R-A-F-C-O-M dot com. So trafcom.com. And it's Donna Papacosta. She's a bit of a good one. She's a smooth-talking woman. Al, what have you brought for us this week? Absolutely nothing. Um, absolutely I nothing. See. I went to the garden to get a buckthorn, as you said five minutes ago. We're talking about buckthorn. So if there aren't any there, the ah. stock is low. <laughs> but anyway, if you did bring one in, it would look like a twig. Yeah, so it'd look like a twig, and you'd probably think it was just a normal twig like any other twig. But, but it's quite a sweet twig because it's quite colourful. It's black and it's sort of got little tiny white spots on. You can identify buckthorn quite well in the wintertime. It grows to about five metres high if you let it. Best it, trim it then. Best trim it, yes. This one, uh, the Ramnus Wrangler, doesn't have thorns. It's thornless. It has red berries ripening into black berries in September, October time, um, which are poisonous apparently. I've had one lady the other day saying that she didn't want any buckthorn because uh, it was poisonous, but I don't think she'd... If she didn't eat the berries, she'd be okay, wouldn't she, really? Mm. <laughs> so I found that a bit curious, because it is quite a nice one in the hedge packs. Anyway, it has small yellowish-white-green flowers, yes. uh, May to June, uh, which the brimstone butterfly loves. Ah. Mm. So this is quite a good one for our wildlife garden hedge, the buckthorn. And we saw quite a lot of it in our Just packs. Just for the brimstone. Yeah, because there's been a lot in the gardening magazines and things on brimstone butterflies of late. And the field mice love the berries. Mm. Ah. So they're not poisonous to them then? No. And apparently the horses, goats and sheep will munch on the leaves but not cows, Phil. Why won't the cows munch on the buckthorn leaves? Don't know. Yeah. I know very little (laughs) about buckthorn. I know about 
Hawthorne, obviously, and Blackthorn, but yeah. Buckthorn's one thought, that's passed me by a bit. Cows chomp on most things, but apparently not, anyway. Um, have you seen an elf? An elf? Yeah. Because if you do want to see a, an elf, there's a legend concerning the Buckthorn, and it says that if you sprinkle Buckthorn in a circle and you dance around it <laughs> under a full moon... I've seen Alison doing that. <laughs> An elf will appear, and the dancer must notice the elf and say, Halt, and grant my boon before the creature flees. The elf will then grant one wish. So tonight, Alison, (laughs) is a full moon, and so I would like you to dance around and see if an elf appears for next week's podcast. Oh, I could do that. It's very muddy at the moment. So. I think there's a photo for the blog opportunity there. <laughs> Where on earth did you get that information from? Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikibolt. Wikipedia. Wikipedia. No, no. Al, it's hedging harvest moment, isn't it? How are you getting on? It sure on? is. Well, it's initially um, the first few weeks of manic hedging going out. It's been very mild. And still there's um, leaves remain on the hawthorn. Uh, the dogwood leaves are coming off. Just need a few frosts, really, to um, bring it forward a bit. Is um, that dangerous when somebody replants that? No, it isn't now, because all the sap has risen. It's just that um, when you get loads and loads of hedging in together, the leaves cause the stems to rot. So if you've got a bundle, say of 25, all bundled in together, which you want to plunge in the ground, then the leaves are stuck in between the twigs. that You can't keep them for very long. It causes them to rot. But if they're going straight out, it's fine. Yeah. Yes. How many twigs, or shall I say, hedge plants, have you harvested so far? Ten to twelve thousand. Wow. Um, yeah, not. It's going. And a bit each slowly. of those plants will support several hundred invertebrates. Mm. So that is quick calculation. Squillions, <laughs> listener. Absolutely squillions of habitat provided by young Alison. So if Ricardo was here, I could say that my carbon footprints were quite good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he and I had a row about that as well last oh. week. <laughs> hmm. Okay, well, thank you for coming in. Thank you. And we must move on because it's the end of the show, so goodbye from me. <laughs> goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Till next week, dear listener. And they're going to be delivered by our very own Farmer Phil, who's actually going to London on Thursday. Thanks. Bye-bye. So, Phil, have you delivered them? I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Right, forget that. Okay. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) See, this is the trouble. (laughs) I hope I have. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I blew the House of Parliament up. (laughs) Okay.